If you'd like to open your Bibles at the book of Philemon, and we are at verse 22 this morning. Philemon, verse 22, where Paul says, And one thing more, prepare a guest room for me, because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. Persecution came to um, Dmitri's village in Russia. The nearest church, Christian church, was three days' walk away. And since all the pastors had either been killed or imprisoned, so now Dmitri couldn't get to church more than maybe twice a year with his family. So, once a week, Dmitri and his wife gathered their sons together. He read a story from the old, big family Bible. And Dimitri would try and explain what it meant to his sons. After a few weeks, they started singing the songs that they used to sing at their church. And then they started to pray together. And because the houses were all so close, the neighbors heard and asked if they could come and listen to the Bible stories too. And soon, 25 people were coming to the family Bible reading in Dmitri's house. The communist officials told Dmitri to stop or there would be trouble. Well, he didn't stop. The group grew to 50. And Dmitri was fired from his job. And his wife lost her teaching job. And their boys were expelled from school. But the group continued to meet and grew to 75. Crammed like sardines into Dmitri's house. The communist official turned up at their next meeting, slapped Dmitri around the face in front of everybody and warned him that this was his last meeting. Much worse would happen as the communist official was leaving the house. An old granny stood up and pointed at the communist official. You have laid hands on a man of God, and you will not survive, she said. That was on the Tuesday evening. On the Thursday, the communist officer dropped dead of a heart attack. At the next Tuesday meeting, 150 people turned up. The communist authorities couldn't allow this to continue, so Dmitri was sent to prison for 17 years. I will tell you a bit more about Dmitri's story in a minute. But this story and many others come from Nick Ripkin's book, The Insanity of God, which is based upon the title is based upon the Apostle Paul's phrase, The Foolishness of God. It's published by Open Doors and other organizations. Dr. Ripken is the world's leading authority on the persecuted church in Muslim context today. And his book is the result of 15 years of research following after 25 years of missionary work in Somalia. Between the years 1998 and 2013, Nick Ripken traveled to 72 different countries where Christians have been or are being persecuted for their faith, 
72 countries, and he conducted over 700 in-depth interviews with persecuted believers. And he saw how the resurrection power of Christ still thrives in the church today. He was not only thrilled and amazed by what he witnessed, but his faith was strengthened by interviewing those who were being persecuted. Basically, persecution is the norm for the church full of the Holy Spirit. It works something like this. First of all, the Holy Spirit ignites a fire in some Christians. And this touch of revival causes the church to grow and challenges the uh, standards of the society around it. So secondly, the society does not like that. It's like rubbing salt in their wounds. And so society opposes the church. There are riots, there are fines, there are beatings, there are imprisonments. But thirdly, the church is not defeated by the persecution. Rather, it is refined. A bit like a, a rose that is pruned. It doesn't kill it, it, it improves it. And more and more people are, are reached for Jesus Christ. Now, and when 5% of the uh, community are converted, then the society feels the impact, feels the benefit of the Christian church. And soon the persecutors, all their relatives get saved, and so the persecution starts to stop. Fourthly, the revival continues for that generation. Society continues to be impacted. But the generation after the revival seems to be much cooler spiritually. By the next generation, the church is shrinking. They may send their children to Sunday school, but that's about it. Church is withering. It's having no real impact on society. And then fifthly, the Holy Spirit touches a few individuals who are filled with the Spirit and they, uh, they begin to impact society and society doesn't like it so the, uh, the opposition uh, and persecution starts again. You see how the cycle works. Read your church history. See how the Roman world was transformed by the 4th century. By uh, the 4th century, the whole of the Roman world was so impacted by uh, Christianity that the horrible persecution stopped and the Christian leaders were made uh, national leaders. But by the 5th or 6th century, Christianity was almost decimated in the Roman world. Or look at Germany in the 16th century when Luther came uh, along. And then by the 18th century it was cold. But the 18th century, Whitfield and Wesley came to our country. But look at us now. Or look at South Korea a generation ago. Or China today. Persecution is the order of the day for the spirit-filled church. And prison is the home from home for many revival revived preachers when the spirit moves the forces of evil oppose satan will let sleeping churches lie it's when the church is alive that the persecution comes 
For Paul, as he writes to Philemon here in verse 22, he alludes to three rooms that characterize spiritual believers. First of all, there's the prison cell. This is from which Paul writes and from which he hopes to be released soon. Secondly, there's the guest room. This is in Philemon's house church where Paul can stay and have fellowship with the church that meets in Philemon's home. And thirdly, there's the prayer closet where Philemon would go and get alone with God and pray for Paul's release. And if we are going to be revived, if we are going to know the resurrection power of Christ transforming us, if we're going to know the power of the Spirit who came on Pentecost flowing through us, we must make room for these three rooms in our lives. So, first of all, the power of the prayer room. Paul expects to be released from prison in answer to the prayers of Philemon and the believers in the church there in Colossae. He wasn't fatalistic. He didn't say, well, God is sovereign. If God wants me to be released, I'll be released. If he doesn't want me to be released, I'll stay here. Que sera, He wasn't individualistic. You pray for your problems, Philemon. I'll pray for my problems, you know, the problem with that is that our prayers, when we pray for ourselves, tend to be selfish prayers. And selfish prayers are often unanswered prayers. James chapter 4, verse 3 says, you don't get an answer to your prayers because you pray for yourself. But Paul is hopeful. He hopes, as he says, to be restored in answer to their prayers. He knows that sometimes Christians die in prison. He knows that sometimes Christians are left for years in prison. He was in the days of Felix and Festus. But he senses that it's God's will for him to be released. Indeed, he has God's promise that he's going to go to Rome to testify to Caesar. And so he expects in answer to their prayers to be released soon. Paul knows that True praying was effective and powerful. And he says almost exactly the same words as he uses here when he writes to the Christians in the church in Corinth, in 2 Corinthians 1, verses 10 and 11. He expects to be released in answer to their prayers. And yet for me, I find it difficult to be faithful in prayer. I find it easy to do almost anything else and secondly, I find many of my prayers seem to get answered no. And both these things discourage me. And I become weaker and weaker and more disheartened in my praying. And yet I want to be growing stronger and stronger and praying effective fervent prayers. So let me give you two things that I have found helpful. First of all, pray for others. For many years, I found that my prayers were a little like a child's list to Santa Claus. You know, I want this, give me that, do this for me. And that was what my prayers were. They're all about me. But that's not the emphasis that Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer teaches us, first of all, to pray for God's glory. And then to pray for 
others forgive us. Give us. Love for God, love for neighbor. Or consider the Apostle Paul's prayers in the New Testament. They are full of praying for others to be strengthened and encouraged. And then he asks them to pray for him. And I had, hopefully I am learning, to stop being my usual selfish self because my selfish prayers weren't answered. And I was just getting angry with God and discouraged by his silence. It seemed like the heavens were like brass and there was just no connection between my prayers and God's actions. Well, here in Philemon, if you look at verse 4, you find that Paul prayed for Philemon. And here in verse 22, Paul expects Philemon to be praying for Paul. And Paul expects God to answer. So let's learn to pray for other people. To pray for the glory of Christ. To pray for the growth of the church. Helpful to write out prayer lists, isn't it? Because, you know, people say, well, could you remember me tomorrow? And three days later, we remember that we forgot. <laughs> so it's worth writing things down and having prayer lists. I have lots of different prayer lists. So I pray at different times on different days for different things. Uh, some people keep a prayer diary. So each week they pray for exactly the same things on the different days because you can pray for your family members every day, but to pray for all your friends and all your missionary contacts every day, it can be a little bit uh, trying so you can spread it out during the week or even the month. But we need to pray for others. And secondly, I found it helpful to pray with others. And this is hinted at in verse 22, where Paul uses the word plural for you and your. And one thing more, prepare a guest room for me because I hope to be restored to you all in answer to all your prayers. Of course we pray on our own. We've got to pray on our own. And we can pray on our own anywhere, anytime, during the night or day. And Jesus prayed on his own, and he taught us to go into our room, shut the door, and pray to our Father who sees what is done in secret. But normally that is not enough. It is hard to spend an hour in prayer on your own. And even if you do manage to spend an hour in prayer one day, to do the same the next day and the next day and the next day is very difficult. It is so beneficial to pray with others. So husbands and wives pray together. When I was at Lansdowne and I was getting more and more tired, it made me I was slower and slower at my work, trying to work longer and longer hours. So I used to get into the office for 7 o'clock in the morning, eat my breakfast and lunch in the office, come home for dinner at 6 o'clock and be back in the office for half past 7 in the evening and come home between 10 and 11 and um, Caroline and I would have a short Bible reading, and I would say a prayer that was almost exactly the same every night. Dear Lord, thank you for this day. Watch over our family. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Fall asleep. <laughs> and that was it. And it wasn't really all that great. But then when I finished working there, I had a lot more free time. We were able to have a proper daily Bible reading each morning, able to get a cup of tea, read our Bibles together, and then both of us pray about a whole raft of different things. 
and it has been wonderful. So now even when I'm back at work, I don't get into the office at 7.30 in the morning. They're <laughs> lucky if I get in at all. <laughs> They're lucky if I get in for 9.15 because we want to continue praying together about all the concerns on our hearts. Some of us can't do that for one reason or another. But we can have prayer triplets or prayer quads or prayer partners. We, we can find others to pray with and we can meet each week. And um, I know some people who uh, work not that far from each other and during their lunchtime or one day a week, they will drive and they will meet together. They will sit in someone's car. They will eat their lunch together and they will pray together for half an hour. And it just keeps them praying together. I suggest that people meet weekly or fortnightly or monthly, meet for 45 minutes. Uh, no teas, cakes, coffee, there to pray. Share your concerns, pray for each other, then go home in less than an hour. Otherwise, it drags on so long it becomes a burden. Just get praying together. And then there's the church prayer meeting, isn't there? This is the priority of uh, the work of the church. This is the powerhouse of the church. This is the most important meeting of the week. This is a must for us. If you feel that you are hopeless at praying and ashamed of the poverty of your prayer life, then make sure you go to the prayer meeting and can echo other people's prayers in your heart to help improve your prayer life. Learn to spend an hour in prayer with others. If you are a prayer warrior, go to the prayer meeting to encourage others in prayer and lift the meeting up into the presence of God. If you are struggling spiritually, go to the prayer meeting. Make prayer priority and meet with others as they call upon the name of the Lord. If you're shy and find it really difficult to pray in public, then prepare your prayers. Even write them out and bring them with you. But let's be a praying church. We have a choice. Walton Evangelical Church has a choice. We can be a praying church or we can be a dying church. There's no in-between. We're either going forward on our knees or we're slipping. We need to be a praying church. And as we become spiritually alive, the monthly prayer meeting becomes a weekly prayer meeting. And as that becomes more alive, the weekly prayer meeting becomes a daily prayer meeting. And as we grow more alive, so the daily prayer meeting becomes a morning prayer meeting and an evening prayer meeting. And we're calling upon the name of the Lord. And it's a bit like Jacob's ladders where our prayers are rising up to heaven and the blessings are coming down. And we will experience the power of glory flowing into the church. But it's the power of the prayer room. Second room. We discover the life of the fellowship room, the fellowship of the church. It's not unusual when a person is newly converted that they want to be at absolutely every meeting that's going on in the church. They love the Lord. They love the Word of God. They love the people of God. And I don't know whether this happened to you, but unconverted family members will tease you and say, oh, you should take your bed down to church. You're virtually living there. 
Well, when we have a healthy relationship with God in the uh, prayer closet, then we uh, find we have a happy relationship with God's people in the fellowship room. When Paul asked Philemon here to get a guest room prepared, he wasn't saying to Philemon, I want a free week's holiday at your house. <laughs> he wasn't asking for a holiday in Colossae. And Philemon's wife didn't go into panic, thinking, oh, I've got to prepare all these meals for the famous apostle. No, no. Paul wasn't being a burden in New Testament days, a man's house wasn't his castle. His house was his place of work. His house was where the animals slept at nighttime with the family, all in the main room downstairs. It was where the church met when they had meetings. And the guest room was a small room on the roof, which if you had visitors coming, they could stay there because they couldn't sleep with the family in the one family room. But it was a storeroom, a bit like the garage the rest of the time. And this is um, Paul saying, I, I, get the guest room ready for me. I'm coming to work in your house to earn my keep and to work for the church to enrich them. He's come to work. This is why in the next verses he calls his uh, partners, his colleagues, fellow workers. And the church is the fellowship room where we get encouragement where we are fed spiritually, where we're built up in the things of God. But it's primarily where we serve. This is the Sunday morning service. Some of us um, have had to slow down, and we're primarily prayers and encouragers. Some of us are young and are learning the ropes and given room to make our mistakes, but others are strong, carrying the burden of the day. And this is how the church functions. God has given us, all of us, at least one spiritual gift, and the spiritual gifts are to be used for the building up of the whole church, for the service of the church. So if we are spirit-filled believers... We want to serve one another as God has created us and gifted us to serve. And as we do that, we're conscious of God's smile. We're conscious of God's blessing. We're conscious of the joy we have in serving God in the way we've been created. And as we're all fitly joined together in Christ with our spiritual gifting in love, then God's power that flows into us because of our time in the prayer room flows through us because of our service in the fellowship room and others are impacted with the love and grace of God and bit by bit others are added to the church and then the society begins to feel threatened their godless lifestyle is disturbed and this leads to opposition. So finally, there is the cost of the prison cell, the prison room. Now, it's good news for you, all right? It's normally only the leaders who get sent to prison, all right? Okay? <laughs> normally only the leaders. The church stands with their leaders, prays for the leaders, supports their leaders, and others stand up to take the place of the leaders... And then they get shipped off to prison too. And others take their place. 
And all over the world today, thousands of our brothers and sisters are suffering in prison for the work of Christ. Dimitri, remember Dimitri. As I said, he was sentenced to 17 years in prison. I'm not sure if he was sentenced to just 17 years, but he only spent 17 years in prison. And he was sent to a prison a thousand kilometers from his family. And he was, as far as we know, the only believer amongst 1,500 criminals in that prison. But he kept two disciplines going. First of all, every morning at daybreak, he would stand to attention by his bed. He would lift up his hands and he would sing what he called his heart song to Jesus. The same song every morning. The other prisoners laughed cursed, jeered. They banged their metal mugs against the prison bars in protest. They threw old food at him. They even threw human waste at him, trying to shut him up. But every day, at daybreak, he stood up tall and sang his heart song to Jesus. He began the day like that. And secondly, every time he found a scrap of paper, got a pencil, and he would write Bible verses on this scrap of paper or hymn, verses of hymns that he had remembered off by heart. And in his um, cell, there was a pipe running down the wall that would drip, and so it was wet. So he would stick this piece of paper on the wet, and it would stick there as long as it wasn't freezing. In the winter, it would freeze, but uh, when it was wet, it would just stick there like glue on the pipe. And when the guards came in, they saw it, they would take it down, and they would beat him. But... He said nothing gave him greater joy than being able to give an offering to Jesus in his prison cell. One day, his guards told him that they had raided his home a thousand kilometers away, beaten up his wife and kids, and killed them all. This was too much for Dimitri. It broke him. He told his guards, you win, he said. I'll sign your paper that I'm not a believer in the Lord Jesus, that I'm just a Western government agent, knowing that then he would be free. They said they would bring the papers around tomorrow and he could sign them tomorrow and be free. That night, as he sat on his prison bed, he was in deep despair, grieving for his children who had grown up and died without him, grieving that he was now giving up feeling that God had failed him. When? His family, a thousand kilometers away, who were not dead at all, hadn't even been beaten up, they sensed that Dimitri was in a crisis. They called Dimitri's brother to their house, and they knelt in a circle, and they prayed for Dimitri. And the most amazing thing happened. In his cell, a thousand kilometers away, Dimitri heard the voices of his wife, his children, and his brother praying for him. The next day, they brought the papers for Dimitri to sign. I'm not signing anything, he said, and he told them why. Sometime later, he found a whole piece of A4 paper and he says God had laid a pencil beside it. So he rushed back to his cell. He filled the whole piece of paper, both sides, with Bible verses, spiritual songs that he had memorized, stuck it on the pipe, and the guards came in, took it down, 
beat him and told him he was going out to be executed. And then the strangest thing happened. As they dragged Dmitri from his prison cell, 1,500 hardened criminals stood up to attention beside their beds. They lifted their hands up and they all sang Dmitri's heart song to Jesus. The guards immediately released their hold on Dmitri and one of them asked him who he was. He stood up tall and replied, I am a son of the living God and Jesus is his name. They took him back to his cell and sometime after this he was released from his prison. And many years later when Dmitri told this story to Dr. Nick Rifkin, sitting exactly where his family had knelt to pray for him that amazing night, Dr. Rifkin realized that prison hadn't destroyed Dmitri. It had strengthened him. It made him into a mighty man of God. If the prayer room is where we have dealings with God, and the fellowship room is where we serve one another, the prison room is where our society sees that Jesus Christ is our Lord. Don't fear it. Be prepared for it. So how do we prepare for the prison room? How do we prepare for persecution? Very, very, very briefly, two things. Number one, realize that Jesus is worthy to be suffered for. If you are called to suffer, if you are called to suffer immensely, does Jesus have the right to ask you to suffer for him? Is he worthy of your suffering? Yes, of course he is. As C.T. Studd said, if Jesus Christ is God and gave his life for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. He is worthy. Let's burn this into our hearts and our minds. If Jesus asks your family to suffer for him, is he allowed to do that? Is he worthy of their suffering, read the Gospels, study the Gospels, memorize the Gospels, live in the Gospels, and get a grasp of the height and depth, the length and breadth of the love of Christ. Survey the wondrous cross. Be captivated and controlled by the love of Christ. Yes, if he asks us for all that is precious to us, we hold everything in open hands for him. And with tears rolling down our cheeks, we sing, All to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. <laughs> Makes me shudder to preach it. How on earth can we put it into practice? He is worthy a million times over. And secondly... Begin today praising him in your suffering. We don't know persecution, but we do know unhappy jobs, difficult families, physical and emotional pain, financial pressures, problems with neighbors, other stresses and fears. And if Christ has called us to suffer this, let us stand up, lift up our hearts, hands every day and sing, to Jesus be the glory the dominion, and the praise. To God be the glory. We will glorify God in our marriages or our singleness, in our wealth or in our poverty.
in sickness or in health. And count it a privilege to suffer for him who gave his life for us. I need to confess my faults here. I've never been what I ought to be. I have failed so much. So please pray for me. I will pray for you. And let's decide to replace our grumblings and complainings and selfishness and hostility because of our problems to heart songs of praise to Jesus. Paul says, prepare a guest room for me because I hope to be restored to you. We don't wait for the Apostle Paul to come to us. We don't even wait for our new minister to come to us. We're waiting for the Lord Jesus Christ to return. Our lives and our homes need to be ready for when he comes or calls. And he will return. Maybe in revival. Maybe the second coming. But the Lord will suddenly return. So let's be ready. Realizing that he is worthy of all that we have to be given to him. Let us be devoted to glorifying him even in our sufferings. For he is Lord.